0: Movie Town Fort Smith's last video rental store closed after 38 years in business. Oh. On August 31st, 2022, the nostalgic Friday and Saturday night family entertainment venue that served the Fort Smith community for nearly four decades finally called it quits. Movie Town owner Dan O'Mahony said that the prevalence of streaming vid- movies during the pandemic, from 2020 to 2021, is really what killed the movie rental business. Uh, to their credit, though, Movie Town outlasted even the big corporate giants like Blockbuster and Hollywood Video. O'Mahony said he loved his time having a business in Fort Smith. He said, "Quote: It's like losing a family member. It's not an easy thing to do." A lot of people are sad. When asked various questions by a reporter from the Times record, he said he fondly remembers the days when people would wait in line just to rent their movies. Y'all remember those days? Those are the good old days, eh? Well, those days are long gone. I guess all things that are good come to an end, don't they? I'm sure each of us, regardless if you have no idea what a VHS tape is or a DVD is, or you are so glad those days are over, I would venture to say that each one of us have experienced a good thing come and go before, begin and end, enter and leave in our own life. So, how about you? What good thing have you experienced in your life that has come? And now it's a distant memory. Perhaps it was a small group or a Sunday school class at a church you are a member of. You grew a lot with friends in there for a season of time. And at a time in your life where you were all growing up together. Getting married, raising kids, enjoying life together, and growing in Christ together. Or perhaps you were a part of the choir. Or you served on a, staff, a church staff, served as a deacon, Bible study leader children's ministry director, committee chairman, a one adult, a leader, or student ministry leader. But then that season of your life has ended. The group broke up. The people got older. People moved on. Others stepped down and others were raised up. And that part of our life, that chapter of our life is now over. It's a distant memory. Or perhaps you've worked in a job for the last 20-plus years. It may have been the only job in your adult life you've ever had. You've driven the same route, gone through the same routines, known a lot of the same employees for decades working there, but now you're facing a crossroads. Maybe the company is going in a different direction that you're not comfortable with. Maybe the school you work at is making it really hard on you spending quality time with your family. Or maybe it's beginning to squeeze you and test your spiritual beliefs like you've never had tested before. Or maybe you're in a business that isn't making the profits it used to make. Or maybe you're not able to keep good employees for very long. And now you're not sure how much longer you can keep this thin business pattern going. Or maybe you're getting to a place in your life where you simply don't have the energy anymore. You don't have the motivation to get up and do that job like you used to. It's becoming clear with each passing week, you may need to part ways and find a new job or just simply retire. Or it's possible you're a mom or dad in here and you've raised children and now they're grown up and out of the home and you're getting adjusted to this whole empty nester season of life the fact that you're a boy or a girl, and possibly even both, depending on their ages, and if you have more than one, the children you have spent nearly two-plus decades raising, knowing where they're at, knowing who they're spending time with, and generally knowing how they're doing emotionally, spiritually, and socially, they're now no longer under your immediate watch. And now you're tempted, possibly, to live through your children. Hold on to being that helicopter parent, hold on to the past when they were younger, and keep them from spreading their wings and moving on in life. Friends, it can be hard to accept change in our life, can't it? Change can be really difficult. It can be difficult sometimes to let go and simply move on from the past. It can be overwhelmingly fearful for some people to face a future that seems hopeless so why do good things come to an end you ever asked that before why can't good things in this life stay good never change never leave and never end Well, aside from the hundreds and even thousands of reasons, decisions, factors, and circumstances that bring about all these changes, friends, you can nail this and hang your hat on it. These following things will remain constant. Temporary seasons of life is reality. Change is inevitable. All earthly joys Pleasures and blessings do have an expiration date. And that's ultimately because death exists. Death happens to everyone. Death even occurred in the life of Jesus of Nazareth, a horrible and gruesome death by crucifixion. And that's exactly where we left off last time in our study in the Gospel of Mark. The only truly good man to have ever lived He died. If you have a copy of God's word, please open your Bibles to Mark chapter 16, Mark 16. If you're using one of the chair Bibles provided, you can find that on page 498, Mark 16. In last week's sermon, we read about the best thing, or possibly better put, the supremely best person that has ever lived on this earth, and his life came to an end. Jesus of Nazareth, the man who claimed to be the divine son of man, sent from heaven to give his life as a ransom for many, he died all alone on a Roman cross. And through the betrayal of a disciple, through the unjust courts of the Jewish Sanhedrin, Caiaphas, Pontius Pilate, and yet all of them under the sovereign will of God, the only truly good man, to have ever lived, breathed his last. Well, this morning, we're also coming at the brink of finishing a good thing, which is our last study in the Gospel of Mark together. We began this series on April 11, 2021, and over the last two years, we've taken some breaks in between to cover other books of the Bible. Uh, but this morning, we've reached the final chapter of the Gospel of Mark, with this sermon being the 40th sermon I've preached in this series. I mention all those things up front for two reasons. Two reasons. Reason number one is for a discipling reason. A discipling reason. If you're here today and you're thinking, Blake, I want to disciple another Christian. I'm not even sure exactly what that looks like. But would you give me some free guidance on how to do that? Well, here's one easy way to do that. Take the Gospel of Mark. We've been in it for almost two years. You got 40 sermons on the church podcast. Use it as a tool to walk with another believer chapter by chapter through the gospel of Mark. And if my sermons have been lame, they've just been face plants, I can recommend other sermons and resources that could be helpful to you. So if you've been here since 2021 or the bulk of these sermons, you already have enough truth about Jesus to teach others how to follow Jesus. The second reason I make mention of this being the last sermon is to bring our attention to how the gospel of Mark uniquely ends. So if you didn't have your coffee this morning, the next 15 to 17 minutes are going to be a little dense for your minds, but I think it's good to humble us when we don't understand something and continue learning to know more. So what do you mean by that? Well, this morning's sermon is only going to cover verses 1 to 8 and not verses 9 to 20 that might give you some heartburn. You might be asking, Pastor Blake, why not? Isn't this all of God's Word? Well, for the next 15 minutes or so, I do want to address a very important topic so you're not left hanging in curiosity. First, in verses 9 to 20 of our English translations of the Bible, we have this section in brackets, possibly double brackets some of you have, may have it footnoted at the bottom of your bible at the bottom of the page or it's in the italics in the margin of the bible and it says the following or something like it quote some of the earliest manuscripts do not include mark 16 verses 9 to 20 so what on earth does that mean you might be sitting here going i've never even paid attention well i'm glad i'm bringing that to your attention It means this, based off the oldest manuscripts, the oldest documents of the Bible we have today in its original language, those dating all the way back to the closest we can get to the first and second century, within the oldest ones that scholars and historians have in their possessions today, verses nine to 20 are missing from the oldest manuscripts. So here's some brief church history. Any of these names pop up in your mind? You can research later and study on your own. Back in the 1500s, arguably one of the most learned men on earth, Desiderius Erasmus, who lived from 1466 to 1536, he produced the first published and printed editions of the New Testament in Greek. For his work in the Gospels, he had only two manuscripts to make that edition. Later on in church history, the Textus Receptus, that's in Latin for it, which means the received text, was produced, and from those works, we eventually have men like William Tyndale come along and translate the first Bible from the original language into the English language. The Textus Receptus became the dominant Greek of the New Testament for the following 250 years, hence why most people still have and maybe currently have a King James Bible. It is based off the Textus Receptus, or the Received Text, and that's where the New King James came along in the 20th century. Both of those uh, Bibles come from that manuscript tradition. However, in the 19th century, two of some of the oldest manuscripts we have today of the New Testament were discovered. These manuscripts are very important because they contain all four Gospels, now, if you want to really do your research and just grow in this area, you can look these up on the internet, okay? These manuscripts are Codex Sinaiticus, or Sinaiticus rather, Codex Sinaiticus, uh, there we go, and Codex Vaticanus. And in both of those manuscript families, verses 9 to 20 are missing from them. You can go on the internet and check those out, the word Codex or Codices. They just simply mean books of ancient scrolls. Now, other historical facts to consider reading this very questionable, longer ending of Mark. Eusebius, who lived from A.D. 275 to 340, an early church historian of the 4th century, said, quote, the most accurate copies. It's a man living in the 4th century. End at Mark 16, verse 8. Jerome, who lived in A.D. 347 to 420, was the translator of the Latin Vulgate. And he said that almost all Greek manuscripts lack an ending after Mark 16, verse 8. That's all under point one. Point two. Second point to mention, verses 9 to 20 contain about 14 to 17, depending on how you count, words that are never used previously or they're used very differently throughout the gospel of Mark. If you read all of Mark's gospel in one sitting and then look at 9 to 20, the style in writing is very different. The grammar and sentence structure, they don't appear to be from Mark. Number three, there also appears to be an abrupt and awkward transition from verse 8 to verse 9, which makes it less probable that it was Mark's original words. So look down with me at Mark 16, verse 8. You'll notice there it says, And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Verse 9, now when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, for whom he had cast out seven demons. Here in verse 8, the women are the main subject of the sentence, being afraid at the tomb. And then verse 9, just suddenly out of nowhere, changes where Jesus is the subject of the verse. We do know elsewhere in the Gospels, the other Gospels, that that is, in the progress of events, the next thing that does happen but it doesn't quite fit Mark's style. It just seems abrupt and forced. Also, it's interesting to note that he describes Mary Magdalene with the tag description for the first time as an entire gospel, as the one from whom Jesus cast out seven demons. Well, that's interesting. Why would you mention that notorious description about someone at the very end of your gospel when you've already mentioned her multiple times in it? Think of Judas Iscariot. He's mentioned at the very beginning of the Gospel of Mark, Mark 3, as the one who betrayed Christ. That was was a way for the Gospel writers to define and describe who they're introducing to us, the readers. Well, Mary's already been mentioned multiple times in Mark 15 alone. Number four, many of the verses contained in verses 9 to 20, if you read them carefully this afternoon, just check it out they look like a patchwork of conglomeration of verses that are actually quoted in other gospels almost verbatim, Matthew, Luke, John, and even in Acts, which means that even though the verses we see in brackets, verses nine to 20 may very well not have been in the original autographs or original manuscripts, the teachings within them, largely speaking, are taught elsewhere in the inspired text. Now, I will just want to bring attention. I like hitting things head on. Have you got that pretty clear under my pastoral ministry? We're gonna deal with divorce and remarriage. We're gonna deal with eschatology. We're gonna deal with textual criticism. In verse 16, there is what I think an erroneous understanding where it seems that baptism is required for salvation. Again, that should give us a raised eyebrow if you read verse 16 carefully. Verse 18 is even stranger and more odd. It speaks of drinking deadly poison. Well, you may have watched some Netflix television shows of snake handling in North Carolina and drinking poison, and this is where they get that stuff from. Well, get on the internet, most of those dudes die in the pulpit, or they have cardiac arrest. We are never told in Scripture explicitly or by example to drink deadly poison and see if God will keep us alive. Now, that's called being a moron. So, it's in our English Bibles, but we're bringing this to our attention. You might then be asking, Blake, are you telling me I can't trust the Bible in my hand? Are there parts of my Bible that are not inspired of God? You go to college right now and you take your first semester of religious studies, you're going to have a professor slam this in your face. So I'm preparing you if you have kids or if you're parents and you start dealing with this even in the workplace. Are you saying I can't trust the book in my hand as thus saith the Lord? No, I'm actually saying quite the opposite. You can trust the veracity of this book, but with some nuanced explanation and total transparency. The issue we're looking at before we study our text is what theologians and scholars have called for many years textual criticism. The discipline of New Testament textual criticism simply means the study of the original text. The Bible is not written in English. It was not originally written in Latin. Hebrew and Greek and some Aramaic. That was the original language of the Scriptures. The purpose of New Testament criticism is to contrast and compare all the different manuscripts we have, all 39 books of the Old Testament and 27 books of the New Testament. And here are the facts. They're indisputable. The New Testament was written in first century A.D., Kids, that's a really, really long time ago. You ever say, Mom and Dad, it's taking forever. It's like two hours. No, 2,000 years ago. That's a long time ago. What you hold in your hand originally was written in the New Testament 2,000 years ago, not even counting the old. Copies and copies of copies have been produced by the hands of scribes for hundreds of years from that point in the first century until the 15th century. Remember, the printing press hasn't been invented yet until the 15th century. So everything that was written in history up to this point had to be copied, memorized, passed down, and preserved through the meticulous copying and copying over long periods of time. So that means there were no printers. There are no photocopiers. There are no iPhones where you can just take a screenshot. There's not even an instant Polaroid camera you could have used. No, every year they were writing these things down on parchments or animals of skin year after year. You know what's mind blowing about the Bible? Today we have over 25,000 early manuscripts in existence translated from various languages. Over 5,000 of them have been found with fragments and manuscripts of the Greek text. Others even hold translations of the New Testament dating all the way back to the second century. Just for comparison, if you wanna pit the Bible against other very well-known resources of literature in the ancient world, listen to this. Caesar's Gallic Wars was written in the first century BC. There are only 10 manuscripts in existence. The earliest textual evidence we have was copied 1,000 years after the original. Aristotle's Poetics was written in the fourth century BC. There are only five manuscripts in existence. The earliest textual evidence we have was copied 1,400 years after the original. Tacitus's History and Annals, written in the first century. Okay, let's compare it to the Bible, written in the first century. Only two manuscripts survive. And that, even one dating from the 9th century and the other the 11th, which is 8,100 years respectively later than their surviving copies. Friends, that's an embarrassing statistic compared to what we have with the Bible. If you'd like to learn more about how we got the Bible in our hands, Lifeway didn't produce it, by the way, or your grandma. You're not related to King James, so just throw that out there. And by the way, the Bible's been around a lot longer in its original autographs before the King James. So if you want to do some more studies in this, I would encourage you to jot down at least one of them. Number one, www.michaeljkruger.com. michaeljkruger.com. I would love to get Dr. Kruger here if I could. He's in North Carolina. He's one of the leading scholars today in the study of the origins of the New Testament, particularly the development of the New Testament canon. michaeljkruger.com. Number two, Why Trust the Bible by Greg Gilbert. Why Trust the Bible by Greg Gilbert. That book is in the church lobby. It's white on the shelf. Feel free to grab one as you leave. Number three, How We Got the Bible by Greg Lanier. Very small book. I mean, really thin, easy on layman's level. Anyone could read it. How We Got the Bible by Greg Lanier. Number four, another great book to check out would be Can We Trust the Gospels by Peter J. Williams. Can We Trust the Gospels? by Peter J. Williams. And number five is F.F. Bruce's book. I'm sure, Greg, you'll probably get this in seminary or some of you former seminarians have read his book, but it's called The New Testament Documents. Are they reliable? Listen to F.F. Bruce as he summarizes the manuscript evidence of the Bible and the veracity or the trustworthiness of it. Listen to what he says, quote, the variant readings about which any doubt remains among textual critics of the New Testament affects no material question of historic fact or of the Christian faith and practice. That's a very important statement. In other words, though there might be debate amongst varying manuscript traditions on sentences and some select verbs and words And the longer ending, the two most disputed passages to let you do your own studies, is Mark 16, verses 9 to 20, and John 7, 53 to John 8, 11, which is the woman caught in adultery. Those are the most disputed passages, having not been in the oldest manuscript traditions. If you take all the variants of the 25,000 manuscripts and you put them all together through critical scholarship and testing, there is no essential doctrine that is changed or contradicted from what is clearly taught in Scripture. None of it. In other words, God's Word does not contradict itself. It can't contradict itself because it has one divine author. God cannot lie, and God can preserve His Word through thousands of years to communicate to his people exactly what he wanted them to hear. So let me conclude as we land the plane in the airport on our text. In verses 9 to 20, though they are not, most likely not inspired of what Mark originally wrote, the ending of the other three gospels are all consistent with what we will read about in the events surrounding the crucifixion in Mark's gospel. And the way Mark decided to end his gospel in verse 8, is the way God intended through Mark's authorship for us today to respond to who Jesus is and what that means for our life. Now, you can get off the squat rack, re-listen to that later, or talk to me in the hallway. Let's get to the inspired text. We left off last week with a tomb that contained the corpse of Jesus. Mark 16, starting in verse 1. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, and Salome bought spices, so they might go and anoint him. And very early on, the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. This is God's word. When we study the life and death of Jesus, we must never forget the resurrection of Jesus. Let me say that again. When we study the life and death of Jesus, we must never forget the resurrection of Jesus. So if you've had a membership interview here at CCBC, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but ask yourself, at what point did Pastor Blake go, hey, did he just stay in the grave? And you're like, oh no, he got up from the dead. Ah, pretty important. So as Christians, the, the resurrection is not the cherry on top or an afterthought. It is interconnected with the life, death, burial, and resurrection. Friends, when we study the life and death of Jesus, we must never forget Jesus got up. That's because the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, listen, folks, is the hinge by which all of Christianity rises or falls. If Jesus stays in the grave, if Mark 16 and Matthew 28 and Luke 24 and John 20 were ripped from the Bible, we don't have a Savior yet. If He dies, we are still in our sin. If He dies and that is it, I'm out of a job. <laughs> I'm a madman. I don't really have a ministry or a gospel to proclaim. Friends, if Jesus stays in the grave, at best, Jesus is nothing but a heroic humanitarian that kindly cared for people's physical needs. Or at worst, Jesus was a madman and a liar. You might say, that's pretty harsh. That's pretty bold, brother. Well, we've been studying the Gospel of Mark, right? Jesus made some promises in the Gospel of Mark. And one of those promises were what? That he would do what on the third day? He would be raised. Friends, hold your place in the Gospel of Mark. Hold it in Mark 16. Turn back to Mark 8.31. I'm going to show you four texts. Okay? Four text. Mark eight thirty-one. And he, Jesus speaking, began to teach them that the Son of Man, speaking about himself, must suffer many things. That was basically all Mark 11 to Mark 14, or really Mark 15, rather. And be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. That's where we left off last week. But the sentence continues. What does he say at the end? And after three days, rise again. All right, now go over to Mark 9. Mark 9, 30 to 31. 9, 30 to 31. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know. For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. That's chapters what? Basically, 11 to 15, more or less. And they will kill him. And when he is killed, what does he say he will do? After three days, he will rise. Now go to Mark 10. Mark 10, 32 to 34. Mark 10, 32 to 34. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him. Saying, see, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver, over, deliver him over to the Gentiles. Who are the Gentiles? Those, Romans, those Roman guards, Pontius Pilate. And they will mock him and spit him and flog him and kill him. And what does the last sentence say? And after three days, he will rise. Now turn over to Mark 14. Mark 14, 26 to 31. Mark 14, starting in verse 26. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, you will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Verse 28, but after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. All right, go over back to Mark 16. So up until this point, Jesus has made it crystal clear. I hope it's crystal clear to us, right? We just read four texts about who he is. He's the divine son of man. What would happen to him? He would be arrested, betrayed, spit on, flogged, and killed, and that he would die and what? Rise again. He even told them explicitly there at the Lord's Supper in the upper room within 24 hours of his death that after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Now remember, Jesus died outside the city gates in Jerusalem. Okay? It's kind of like down here. Galilee is 110 miles north of Jerusalem. What is significant about Galilee? Why does Jesus tell them, I will go there after I'm resurrected? Well, friends, where did the Gospel of Mark begin? In Mark 1, Jesus is coming to a lake, and he sees these four men, these four young, probably teenagers, maybe early 20s, fishing. James and John, Peter and Andrew. He first found these men and told them, I will make you fishers of men in Galilee. In other words, after three or so years of teaching and training these men, he says, I'll meet you where it all began. I'll rise again and meet you where it all started. But there in Mark 16, we're left with some puzzling words and responses by those who first witnessed Jesus' death, or really one of the last witnesses, in verse 1, if you look at our passage to this morning in Mark 16, Mark informs us that the Sabbath day has come and gone. As you may recall, the Sabbath day, which was Saturday, was that 24-hour sanctified or set-apart day of rest where the Jews ceased from their ordinary labors to remember their Creator and be refreshed physically. Uh, but the Sabbath day is now over. And Mark 15, verses 42 to 47, which is right before this, had ended with Joseph of Arimathea, a respected man of the Jewish Sanhedrin that was really kind of a quiet, secret disciple of Jesus. And he takes Jesus' body, a corpse, he's dead, and he places it in a tomb the day before the Sabbath. This is Friday evening. According to Matthew 27:60, he placed Jesus' body in his own family's tomb one that was new and had never been used. Mark informs us that though Jesus' disciples have fearfully abandoned their Lord and they don't want to be publicly seen, remember Peter, I don't know him, hiding behind a fire, denying him in front of a servant girl. There are a group of women that have been standing afar watching their Lord die on Calvary. They've been following Jesus for years, in fact, mark 15 verse 40 if you just want to look down mark 15:40. there were also women looking on from a distance among whom were mary magdalene and mary the mother of james the younger and of joseph and salome when he was in galilee they followed him and ministered to him and there were also many other women who came up with him friends if you read john 19 guess what other mary is present jesus's mom she saw her son crucified on that tree and Mark informs us that though Jesus' disciples can almost be nowhere to be found at this point, there are a group of women that have witnessed it all. And they want to draw near to that tomb. These women love Jesus. They served Jesus. They saw him brutally crucified and they saw exactly where he was buried. Mark 15, 47. It was Mary Magdalene. And Mary, the mother of Joseph, they saw where he was laid on that late, grim Friday evening. And here in Mark 16, we see them again, along with Salome, slowly but surely making their way to the tomb. They had spices, Mark says. In other words, they had gone to the market, whether it was before the Sabbath they had begun or shortly after it had ended, most likely it was super early in the morning Uh, They got spices to anoint the body of Jesus. Maybe it was a kind of a commitment they wanted to fulfill. They didn't get time to do it on Friday. Perhaps it was simply a sign of honor and love, like Mary, the sister of Martha, did back in Mark 14, before he would be betrayed. Uh, At the very least, it would decrease the odor and the stench of a decaying body. In all four Gospels, among the different Marys mentioned, Mary Magdalene is mentioned prominently in all four Gospels. For your own studies, you can look this up. Matthew 28, 1-10. Luke 24, 1-12. John 20, 1-18. I did this in my personal quiet time this week. Printed out all four texts and showed the parallels and the harmonization of all four Gospels in those last scenes. It's very warming and reviving and will actually enrich your idea of what's going on. As one point of observation, keep in mind the 12 disciples that were known as the 12, they were men and they often took center stage in the life and ministry of Jesus. And minus Judas, of course, who eventually abandoned Jesus and betrayed him, these men would eventually be the apostles who would lay the foundation for the church. But we should not overlook these texts in Mark 15 and 16 about these women who were drawing near to the cross and near to the tomb. Many women, the gospel writers say, also followed Jesus. They served Jesus, and they even provided for Jesus and his disciples. Listen to Luke 8, verses 1 to 3. Luke 8, 1 to 3. Soon afterward, he went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God the twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called, Mag- called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. And Joanna, the wife of Chuza, Herod's household manager. And Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their means. Uh, to all the ladies in here, if, if you are a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, you are loved. You are in Christ, and you have been blessed and gifted for service in Christ Church. You have been given the great privilege alongside your brothers in Christ to participate in the Great Commission. Friends, God made men and women differently. Our world needs to read Genesis 1 and 2 a whole lot right now. God made us differently biologically, temperamentally, and he's made us differently in how he has ordained men and women to function and serve together In matters of headship and authority in the life of the church and the home. But contrary to false notions really mentioned by people who disdain the Bible, they they would say claims that the Bible treats women like second-class citizens. Friends, women in the Bible are actually spoken very highly in Scripture. They are commendable, especially for those who follow Jesus. Let me just give you a smattering of examples. Uh, There's plenty of women in the Bible that are commended for their following of Christ. Uh, Think of Phoebe in Romans 16. Think of Dorcas in Acts 9, or Lydia in Acts 16, or Priscilla in Acts 18, or Eunice and Lois in 2 Timothy 1. Friends, there are scores of women in the Bible that God loves and has used, not only in the Bible, but really all throughout the world and in church history. And I just want to make this observational point. Christianity is a pro-women religion. Unlike Islam and other satanic cults, women are spoken of highly and commendable in the scriptures. Personally, as a pastor here at CCBC, I don't know what we would do if we did not have women serving in this church in the capacities they are going. I, I constantly hear stories, whether it's teaching Bible whether that's discipling, whether that's member care, whether that's cleaning, uh, whether that's having an ability to just do anything that a lot of us dudes just can't do. These are ways that God is using sisters in this church. And friends, I give thanks to every sister in Christ here at CCBC. You are loved, you are seen, you are prayed for, you are needed. If you don't hear that from anyone else, you're hearing that from your pastor. I need you. I need your prayers, I need your encouragement, I need your support, I need your co-laboring efforts. We need everybody, men and women, to shepherd and disciple this dear congregation. So sisters, may God continue to stir you up to love and good deeds as the Lord uses you for the building up of his church. In verses three to six, we see a surprising discovery as the women walk towards the tomb and it's a surprise that's also mixed with a lot of fear. Look with me, starting at verse 3. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? Looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. Here Mark brings our attention that the women, they're walking towards the tomb, but guess what they're talking about? Hey, who's going to move that stone for us? They're concerned about, man, how are we going to get this thing open? But it's not necessarily Jesus's absent body that's on their mind. They're anticipating his body is in there. They've got spices. They're talking about how are we going to open the tomb. Either way, it's it's a strange description. Did these women, like the disciples, not believe Jesus would get up from the dead? Were they not with the disciples in Galilee, as we read in Luke 8? And in Mark 15, did they not hear the disciples talk about Jesus saying he would rise again from the dead? Well, apparently their thoughts were more consumed with purchasing spices and wondering how the stone wall would be removed for them. Uh, Friends, sometimes we can know the truth, but our emotions can cloud our thinking. Sometimes we can allow our emotions to lead us instead of the truth that we learn from Jesus lead us. I don't want to speculate beyond that. But it is interesting. They don't seem to be looking for an absent tomb. They seem to be walking towards a tomb. They think Jesus' body is going to be there. Apparently, their thoughts were more consumed with purchasing spices to honor their Lord. How are they going to get inside the tomb? It was super early. The sun was rising at early dawn, probably 5.30 or 6 a.m. And yet, when they get there, not only is the massive stone removed, in other words, what they worried about was nothing to worry about. They see a person in there they have never seen before sitting inside the tomb. And this surprising encounter leaves them alarmed and stunned. Verse 5 says, it's a young man. He was inside the tomb dressed in a white robe. If you read all four Gospels together, Matthew and Mark mention one young man. Luke mentions And John mentions two. If you harmonize them together, there's two in the tomb, and one is predominantly doing the speaking. Mark and Matthew seem to emphasize the one speaking. The other Gospels mention that this young man is also an angel. By the way, if you ever meet someone who claims they've seen an angel, like in their bathroom, or in their bedroom, or like during their quiet time, just ask them the no-brainer question, were you scared out of your wits? Because in the New Testament, anytime angels show up, people get really scared. The guards in the gospel, I think, of Matthew, is they literally sit there like dead men. They had like cardiac arrest, all right? So I just want to, I hope you understand, you don't want to pray for God to show you an angel. No. Any of these soap opera shows that talk about kissed by an angel, what's the... What touch, touch. I mean, this is weird. Like, I don't want to get near an angel in this body. Maybe in glory when I can take on the glory, but no. Angels are scary. And it's just a, described as a young man. This angel appears through this revelation of this young man, and they're afraid. They're alarmed. They have never seen such a thing, and they did not anticipate that man that angel in that tomb instead the angel here says don't be afraid of me don't be afraid that you don't see Jesus either you don't need to be afraid at all Jesus is not here Jesus's body hasn't been stolen you didn't make it to the wrong tomb Jesus is not here because Jesus is alive. Verse 6 says, The angel said, He has risen. The Greek verb tense is in the passive voice, which is indicating what? Who raised Jesus from the dead? God did. Who sent the angel to roll the stone away? God did. Who led these women to that empty tomb on that early morning, even though doubts, questions, and fears flooded their thoughts? God did. How did that angel know where Jesus was now? Because God sent him, God told him, God informed him that the Son of God, though he was crucified on Friday, is now risen and alive on Sunday, the first day of the week, which is why we as Christians make a really big deal about the first day of the week. We spend two plus hours in this building only even only on Sunday mornings. You know why? Because Jesus got it from the dead on the first day of the week. So yes, we can celebrate and pay attention to Easter once a year, but friends, we should never grow tired of singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and making melody in our hearts to the Lord about the resurrection every single Lord's Day. We gather together as a church to celebrate the life, death, burial, resurrection, ascension, exaltation, and session of Jesus Christ. So what does the angel tell the woman to do next? Look at verse 7. But go and tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. Here the angel is crystal clear with his instructions from God to these dear women. They are to do something very simple here. Go and tell what you have seen and heard. Go and tell what you have seen and heard. (coughs) They were to go and tell his disciples. And specifically, did you notice Mark brings this out? They were to go and tell Peter. Why does Peter get singled out? I think we can all safely conclude. It's because Peter was the outspoken one. It said he would never deny Jesus, but eventually did. It was Peter who heard that rooster crow, and it left him undone in sorrow, shame, and regret. Friends, even back in Mark 8, Peter received the sharpest rebuke you could ever hear from Jesus. Get behind me, Satan. Peter was getting in the way of Jesus' mission towards the cross. You know what's amazing about this? I think the angel knew exactly what Peter did on that dreary, dark night. It's amazing that even the angel wants Peter, this despairing, failing, sorrowful disciple, to be restored again by God's mercy. He wants Peter to know that Jesus of Nazareth, his Jesus, Did exactly what he said he would do. He wanted Peter to know that Jesus isn't done with revealing himself and restoring Peter for good things he still has in store for Peter. He wants Peter to know that Jesus is alive and Peter now has real hope for living because of that fact. But what do the women do next? They've encountered this wild, dramatic, alarming, astonishing, and life-changing experience. A large stone has been rolled away. They don't know how it happened. An empty tomb with no body of Jesus to be found but this angel in there. This angel is speaking to them exactly where Jesus is, and they give him a clear command. They give the women clear commands that they are to go and tell what they have seen and heard to the very men Jesus trained himself. For three years. But do they obey? Look at verse 8. And they went out and fled from the tomb. The word fled there is the same word in Mark 14 when the disciples fled and abandoned Jesus, by the way. It means to be scared out of your wits and to get out of dodge. Run. Depart. They went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them and they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. That word astonishment there in the original language is where we get our word ecstasy. The Greek word is ecstasis. It meant to be so bewildered and overcome with shock that it appeared they were out of their minds. They were literally seized gripped and overwhelmed by an ecstasy of emotions. It's the same word used of Peter in the book of Acts when he was in a trance when he saw the vision from the angel in Acts 10. It's the same word used in Mark 5, 42 when Jesus heals and raises a dead girl to life. Mark 5, 42, and immediately the girl got up and began walking for she was 12 years of age and they were immediately overcome with ecstasis, amazement. They were so overcome with this mind-blowing encounter, Mark tells us they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Friends, that's a very interesting way to end a gospel. Doesn't sound very triumphal. Imagine me giving the benediction right now on that one. Honey, what'd you get out of it? It's like some scared women and Something about textual criticism. I don't know. What's for lunch? It appears for a while the women were just like us more than we realize. They were so afraid to do what the angel had told them to do that they disobeyed. They were scared. We would have been scared too. I don't see Jesus, I see an angel, the stone's removed, and I'm now supposed to go tell a bunch of men that I've seen a supernatural encounter of an angel and a dead man raised to life. Who on earth's gonna believe me? Women weren't weren't given a press conference or a platform in first century Judaism. That's why Christianity was pro-women, but in those days, they were looked at as second class. To speak up publicly to men like that they would have looked at her as either a mad woman or a woman that needs to be put behind a padded room somewhere. You know what's interesting, though? That fear, that astonishment that had gripped them and made them run and hide, it was only temporary. Matthew 28.8 says that they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. Friends, that's just like us, isn't it? I believe in this Jesus. I believe in the resurrection. And yet I'm petrified and afraid of various things I find in my life. There is both joy and sorrow, faith and fear, trust and unbelief. Friends, this is the normal experience of following Jesus. Friends, many of us who claim to be followers of Christ are often more afraid, more uncertain and more bewildered than we often want to admit to one another. Friends, by nature, we're not bold. Sheep are skittish and scared. But the gospel message, the gospel story, is for scared, fearful, frightened, and bewildered people just like us. The gospel, the power of God that comes forth through faith in this good news, it confronts us in our deepest fears in life. But it confronts us to deliver us from those fears and to give us our deepest joys. This is the great exchange. A part of salvation is God rescuing us for fears we don't need to be afraid of. It's God rescuing us, being led by our emotions rather than the truth of Jesus. The gospel confronts us, and he says, give me that fear, and I will replace that fear with a fearful joy. How can those two things be together? Fearful and joy. Michael Reeves puts it this way, quote, the gospel frees us from fear and gives us fear. God reveals to us our fear of man, our fear of the future, our fear of being alone, our fear of living a purposeless, depressed, pointless, and empty life. He confronts us and reveals to us our fear of death, our fear of suffering, our fear of eternal punishment under God's wrath for our sin. And in Christ, he replaces that anxiety-inducing fear with a love for God. You see, the love of God is what casts out sinful fear. It's the love of God that propels us to serve, to trust, and to hope in this good God who has been way better to us than our sins deserve. Friends, to fear God is to love Him because He is love. He is worthy to be loved with our entire being. That's what it means to fear him, to love him, to treasure him, to esteem him, to prioritize him, that he be first in our thoughts by day and by night. Friends, how has this triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, how has he loved you? How has he loved me? The incarnation is the Son of God among us. The atonement is the Son of God instead of us. The resurrection is the Son of God for us. The ascension is the Son of God over us. The day of Pentecost is the Spirit of Christ in us. The Great Commission is the Spirit of Christ working through us, and the new creation will be God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit with us. Brothers and sisters, the good life is having God for you, God with you, and God by His Spirit in you, and the gospel makes that possible. We are afraid. We are sinners. We are anxiety-induced, bewildered people who have been shown mercy after mercy after mercy by the courage, by the obedience, by the faithful life of Jesus. He went to that rugged cross. He went on that tree. And when he drank down the cup of God's wrath, friends, our sin was placed on him. And in exchange, he gives us his righteousness. The doors have been opened. The love of God has been manifest if we would but turn from our sins and trust him. Friends, in this life, all good things will come to an end. That's why you cannot, I cannot put our identity and hope in things like this. Do not put your ultimate identity in your job, in your career, or a sport. Why? Because one day it'll be taken from you. Don't put your identity in a spouse or in a child. Why? One day it'll be taken from you. Don't put your identity ultimately in a friend group or a church group, a house or a car, having good health, being young or being attractive. Friends, all those things are like the wind. They're passing away. None of those things, none of those things are precious and trustworthy And lasting as knowing Jesus Christ. What did Jeff read earlier from 1 Corinthians 15? 1 Corinthians 15, 19. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. You see, beloved, our faith must be built upon the promises and character of God and nothing else. Don't build your life and your identity on things that are just going to pass. Pass. They're not going to make it. Our faith must be built upon the promises and character of God. You see, faith that is built upon selfish desires of our hearts, faith that is built on wishful thinking, faith that is built on trying to relive the past or hold on to the past, faith that is built on pleasing people over pleasing God and living by human predictions rather than thus saith the Lord. Friends, it will only lead to a life of hopelessness. This is precisely why Jesus told them up to four times, ahead of time, I'm going to die. You're not going to see me. You're going to deny me. But my dear friends, I'm going to rise again. Watch me. These women heard those same teachings. These disciples heard those same promises. Look again at Mark sixteen seven. Notice what the angel says. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. Did you see this phrase? This is one of those parts, highlight a red pen. This is it right here. Just as he told you. Friends, why is the resurrection the hinge by which Christianity rises or falls? Church historian Nick Needham captures this very well in his three-volume work. He says this, quote, In the thought and preaching of the early church, like the book of Acts, the resurrection was seen as God's mighty vindication of all Jesus' claims. He really was the long-promised Messiah of Israel, the Son of God, the Savior of sinners, the source of God's gift of the Holy Spirit to all who obeyed him. So whichever period of church history we are studying, it is always worth pausing and reminding ourselves of this. The entire history of the Christian church is rooted in one central reality, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. If Jesus of Nazareth has not written, there would be no church history. Friends, you and I are Christians this morning because Jesus got up One of the greatest apologetics for the Christian faith? I can show you New Testament textual criticism. I can give you great books. I can do apologetics with you for weeks. You know where the proof really is in the pudding? Regenerate, born-again believers following a Jesus who got up from the dead 2,000 years ago. That's why a healthy, biblical church made up of sinners who are repenting of their sins and looking to that resurrected Jesus is his platform to show the world I'm reigning from heaven and I'm going to reign totally and completely through my people and through the gospel all over the earth. Friends, we are the most privileged of people on the planet. Our citizenship ultimately is not in America or Barling or Fort Smith or elsewhere. Our citizenship is in a place that cannot be taken from us that will never pass away. It is in heaven with our Lord Jesus. So friends, why is the resurrection important? Well, if I had to show you all my notes that I originally had, we would be here probably for a couple of more weeks. I'm gonna spare you. Amen. You might say, how does the resurrection apply to me right now? How does the fact that Jesus got up from the dead, showed himself to over 500 witnesses, scriptures and prophecies fulfilled, women and men denied him, were scared of him, eventually saw him? How does that have anything to do with my life right now? I'm glad you asked. The resurrection of Jesus Christ secures the following blessings. These are promises made to us. It secures our justification before God. In other words, you're declared right with God once and for all. Romans 4, 23 to 25. It secures our sanctification as God's Spirit working in us to put sin to death in our lives. Friends, it's the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead now lives in us. Let me make a pastoral nudge. It is good and right for Christians to confess sins to one another. You're going to hear that next week in... James 5 in Jansen's sermon. It is good and right to confess our sins, to talk about what we quote-unquote struggle with. But I want to challenge us here. Read Romans 6. Read Romans 8. Christians will sin in this life. Yes, I do believe that, because I am one of them. But when sometimes people say, I'm struggling with some sin, ask deeper questions tell me how you're fighting against that sin. What are you doing in your life to put that to death? Because what I have found amongst many Christians, I'm not talking about just this church, I'm just talking about since I've been a Christian. I used to be one of these. We bellyache and complain and murmur we're struggling when we're actually surrendering. We're just giving in to sin. There is no struggle, it's a giving up. Friends, Romans 6 and Romans 8 Paul says the Spirit who lives within you has power to raise Jesus from the dead and has power to put sin to death in our own lives. Read Romans 6, 1-12, Romans 8, 9-11. to The resurrection also secures our glorification. Like Christ, one day we will receive glorified bodies that never die again, 1 Corinthians 15. The resurrection also secures our union with Christ. You ever heard of Galatians 2.20? I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Or 2 Timothy 2.11, this was my meditation last night, just pondering this on my bed. 2 Timothy 2.11, if we have died with Christ, we will also live with him. Or think about Peter, Peter. 1 Peter 1, 3-5, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through what? The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Friends, Derek Thomas says it very well. Every Christian may know that the day of his death is going to be his best day. How is that? We say goodbye to loved ones, but we say hello to Jesus. Oh, that is a day of rejoicing for every child of God. Friends, you can bank your entire life on every promise Jesus ever made. You and I should study the scriptures to know what God said and not put words in his mouth he never said. Some of our hopelessness and lack of energy and zeal in the Christian life is because we're not in the book finding out what he promised. Jesus made this promise to the disciples and he's going to be good on his promise. Did you know what happened within 50 days after Jesus got up from the dead? Those scared, cowardly disciples in the upper room hiding behind a door. Jesus reveals himself and in 50 days, the outpouring of God's spirit comes down and the book of Acts tells us these cowardly, weak, fumbling, bumbling disciples are bold as lions for Jesus. Do you know why they're bold? Because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They're saying what they saw and what they heard and they're being filled with the same spirit we have. As we close, the resurrection of Jesus also gives us the ability. Remember what Michael Reeve said? It exposes our fears and delivers them to give us that righteous and loving fear for God. The resurrection helps us face death with faith and hope. Albert Martin was the pastor of Trinity Baptist Church in Montville, New Jersey for 46 years. He was married to his wife, Marilyn, for nearly 48 years. As we close, I want to read the following excerpt of his last memories with his wife and her hope in Christ, which spurred him on in his hope in Christ. This is what he said. Throughout Marilyn's lengthy battle with cancer, she and I adopted many little rituals in conjunction with her multiple regimens of chemotherapy her periodic CT scans, and her regular visits to her oncologist. I'll rehearse one such ritual that has great significance in terms of how a spiritually healthy believer anticipates the approach of death. Marilyn and I had hammered out before before God some very clear guidelines concerning the point at which we would accept the inevitable, barring a direct miraculous intervention from God, and desist from any further medical treatments. Marilyn had her CT scans taken at a local hospital on a Monday morning. The following day, I would drive to the hospital and pick up both the films and the radiologist's report. I would go out to the parking lot and sit in my car and read that report. Then I would call Marilyn on my cell phone and convey to her what that report revealed. On one particular Tuesday in March of 2004, the pathology report contained both good and bad news. When I called Marilyn and apprised her of the fact, she asked me to give her both the good news and the bad news. The good news was that the nodules in her lungs had not grown. The bad news is that there was now multiple mastasis in her liver. When I read that portion of the report to her over the phone, her reflexive response, couched in words I shall never forget, was this. Well, dear, I am going home. There was no hand-wringing. There was no string of questions concerning God's right to bring her to this place in her life's history. Was there sadness in facing the fact that most likely in a few months she would leave me in the condition of a grieving widower? Of course. Was there sadness at the thought of leaving children, grandchildren, in deep earthly friendships and relationships? Of course. However, the overriding reality possessing the soul of that dear woman was the fact that God was going to use her metastatic cancer in her liver as the rough door by which she would enter home. Marilyn embraced the fact that as surely as it was true for Peter, God had chosen for her by what kind of death she was to glorify God. What gave Marilyn such confidence and hope to face death as if it was literally a walk home? Well, it was the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father and the Bible says we are already in Christ seated in the heavenly places with our names there waiting on us. Every time a Christian dies, a answered prayer of Jesus occurs. He desires his people to be with him. Friends, how can we face difficult trials like that? It's putting our faith in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Friends, we've got work to do. The women were called to go and tell. The disciples were called to make disciples. And we've been given that same commission. John Newton once said, our work is great, our time is short, and the consequences of our labors are infinite. You might say, Blake, if you could summarize the entire gospel of Mark in one sentence, what would it be? Here it is. Jesus is God's son, and Jesus is alive. Jesus is God's son, and Jesus is alive. The question for us who've been reading this gospel is this. How will you and I respond? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do praise you that in the gospel, you exchange our fears that are unwarranted and often the result of sin and unbelief to give us a love and trust and fear of you. Father, we pray even now that you would cause our gaze to be on that great hope. We ask all this in Jesus' name, amen.